Good morning, all. I'm going to read James 1, 9 through 12. You can follow along in the Pew Bible in the back seat pocket. It's the Burgundy book. It says the Holy Bible. It's on page 1011, okay, 1011. James 1, 9 through 12 read as such. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the living God. Amen. Let me just offer one more plug for our missions conference. Uh, if I could share a quick testimony or an email from uh, a missionary that my family supports, went to seminary with me, uh, missionary, him and his family in Japan. Uh, he says this, next Sunday, which would be this morning, our church has the special privilege of having a baptismal service. It's been a long time since we've seen anyone get baptized, and we are thankful for the two ladies who are ready to boldly declare their faith in Christ by receiving baptism. Both A and Y have fascinating backstories, and we are encouraged by their growth. He says this, although A is in her 30s, she first came to church in the city where they are when she was just a child, and she attended Sunday school for a while, but eventually drifted away, and her, her family eventually moved hours away. Fast forward many years, and she reached back out and told us that she became a Christian, and she was thankful for the work uh, and the ministry done to her for her when she was in Sunday school. And so then I got the email this morning that those two ladies got baptized in Japan in a place where many people, he says, consider Christianity a foreign religion. Uh, and so those are the kind of things our missionaries are doing and experiencing, a rarity of a baptism. So I just want you to know, when they come, and we encourage you to show up to these services, yes, we think you're going to be encouraged, but I also want to turn it around. You will encourage them just by being here. Just by being here. They don't get to have this every week. Uh, but praise God for the work that they're doing, faithfully ministering uh, in all parts of the world. A few weeks ago, we started a study in the book of James, the New Testament letter, uh, Real wisdom, real faith. James, as we learned at the beginning, was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, who ends up pastoring this church in Jerusalem uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection. And now he's writing to Christians that have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire and are suffering all kinds of trials, including persecution and uh, famine. And his goal in writing this letter is to help Christians become more faithful followers of Christ by gaining real wisdom, divine wisdom, so that they can live out a real faith, a faith that works, a faith that is evident. You see, James is convinced that the gospel is good news and that the gospel changes people. And the main theme, as we've been looking through starting in verse 2, the main theme of verses 2 to 12 is how we as Christians are to handle trials, which means that today's passage talking about those who are poor and rich, or I'm going to use the terms having little and having much, it's simply another aspect of the trials that we encounter in life. 
So, today's sermon is two kinds of trials, having little and having much. It might seem odd at first why James would bring up money so quickly in this letter, but when you think about it, isn't money, or, or at least how much we have, a significant part of our lives? Doesn't money consume many hours of our time, of our thinking, of our planning, even our worrying? Isn't how much we have, whether little or much, a major source of stress and consternation for us? We have to admit that it is. And the same goes for the Christians whom James was, write, James was writing to. And James knows that our economic status is not just a minor aspect of our lives. It's a major aspect of our lives. Actually, it often plays an unusually large role in our day-to-day lives. As the saying goes, money makes the world go round. And James is offering us a different way of thinking about how much we have or how much we don't have. He wants us to see that having little is a trial. It's a a test of our faith. It's hard, and we're going to get into why it's hard. But he also wants us to see that having much, he uses the word being rich. I can't use that term because if I say, those of you who are rich, guess how many of you are going to listen to me? Zero. You know why? Because we don't think we're rich. We don't like thinking we're rich. We don't have a problem admitting that we're tall, that we're short, that we're, that we're you know, educated. Not, but if we, if we say rich, no, nobody claims that. So I'm not going to use the term rich. You ask a study show, you ask someone who makes $30,000 a year, how much would it be for you to be rich? They, they say it would take $75,000 a year. You ask people who make $75,000 a year, how much would it be for you to be rich? It would be $150,000 a year. You ask people who ascribe to Money Magazine, this is a study, they, they did a, a research and they asked the readers, how much in, in, in liquid assets would you need to be considered rich? Five million dollars. That means if you have one million, two million, three million, four million dollars in liquid assets, you haven't arrived yet, you're not rich. All right, so I'm not going to use the term rich. I'm going to say those who have little and those who have much. And James's point is, those who have much, it's a, it is also a trial. It's a test of our faith. And James doesn't beat around the bush here. I want to look at how our financial position can actually be used by God to deepen our faith and strengthen our endurance, endurance in Christ. Lesson number one. When you have little, remember to celebrate what matters most. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What does that mean and how is that possible? First, the word to be lowly means generally having a low status. Low social status. Most often it refers to those who are economically poor. It could be a person who's experiencing a financial crisis right now, or the family who never seems to earn enough to to meet their needs. They're always just a little bit short, no matter how hard they're working, or the person who was suddenly laid off. 
It doesn't just mean someone who's always in that position. We have people who might, who might end up, because of a particular life situation, end up in a, in a situation where they are considered lowly. And James is saying, even if you have little, even if you're considered a part of this category of lowly, even if you're struggling financially, even if you live on the lower end of the economic spectrum, he says, you still have reason to boast, or the word you could use there, to celebrate. What's he talking about? He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation or his glory. What exaltation? What glory? Because let's be honest, from the world's perspective, the poor person has no glory. We know that it is those who have little in this world that tend to be marginalized the most, the easiest, easiest to take advantage of, and they have the least influence. That's not glory. In fact, what usually happens is those who are in this lowly category tend to experience the opposite of exaltation, but they experience humiliation. In fact, most of us, when we look at those who are in this category of lowly or who have little, we tend to, to judge them, don't we? We start, and we don't, we try not to, but in our heart of hearts, we think, well, they're just not working hard enough. Or they're not good with their money. If they would just do a better job managing the resources, we look down on the lowly, don't we? Let me just do this quick thought experiment for you, just to make sure we get this out of the way. Is having wealth inherently immoral? Is having wealth immoral? Is it ungodly to have wealth? Of course not. It could be. If you're a drug dealer and that's how you've earned your wealth, yeah, that's, that's, un, that's ungodly. That's immoral. But it's inherently not ungodly or immoral to have wealth. So then the flip side, is it inherently immoral to not have wealth? You see? It can't be. We need to be careful how we link, not to link financial status to godliness. It's part of the trial that comes with having little is the, 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 the feeling of humiliation that's inherent to it. The feeling of humiliation that can lead to dangerous spiritual consequences. Those who have little, those who are lowly, struggle with comparison. They look at others around them, and they seem to just have more than enough. They seem to be happier. They seem to have more friends. Right? People, and I've talked to people, and I've been in this situation, right? I'm a, I'm a son of an immigrant family whose father passed away, and, and my mom has a single income. I know what it's like to feel like, man, all my friends have designer shoes or, or you know, Nike and Reebok, and I'm going to Payless. I hated Payless shoes. I, it was really... Everything seems to be better for those who have more money. And that comparison for those who are lowly robs, uh, robs them of their joy. But there's another danger of being lowly, and it's that we tend to measure our worth by our wealth. We tend, in general, people, we as people, tend to measure our worth by our wealth. Notice James doesn't say, if you, for those who are lowly, to the lowly brother... Get a better job. Cut your spending. Work harder. Now, those things might be needed. 
But he's, he's getting at the heart of the matter here. He's not getting at, you know, pro, this is wisdom literature. He's not going to get into specifics. He's trying to get at the heart of the matter. And what determines our worth? James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. He's talking about our value in Christ. He wants them to glory in who they are in their relationship with God, not in relationship to other people. He wants the lowly to boast in God's view of them, not in how others view them. He's talking about our identity in Christ. The exaltation of the lowly is the truth that no matter how little you have, you are infinitely valuable in God's eyes. You see, you are made in God's image. You reflect his beauty, his creativity, his power. Even though you and I have rejected God by choosing sin over God, he still loves you and pursues you. And he sent his son Jesus to live the life you and I should have lived but couldn't. And he died the death you and I should have died. He died for our sins. And now through faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection on our behalf, we can be forgiven of our sin and granted the gift of eternal life. And we're adopted into God's family forever. That's the gospel. And that's the good news of Christianity. And that's good news because even for the lowliest among us, it means you are a somebody. When the world says you're a nobody, James is reorienting you and reminding you that from God's perspective, your worth is not based on your wealth. And that you don't need to attain to a higher economic status to be loved or delighted in by your heavenly father. No, in fact, when God loves you so much that when you become a Christian, he doesn't just change your identity and change your status. He gives you promises of a glorious inheritance to come. Christian, right now, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You've been given every spiritual blessing. And you have such a glorious inheritance waiting for you that if you, if you were to accumulate all the sufferings of this life, of which I know there are many, and you know that I know there are many, and if you accumulate all of our sufferings and all of our trials, and you, and you try to weigh them in comparison to eternity, it's like one drop in the ocean of God's vast inheritance. James is calling those who have little to celebrate what matters most. You who have little now, he says, need to remember regularly that you are God's beloved child in whom he is well pleased. That is your worth. And if, if he thinks that much of you now, if he has gone to such great lengths to, share, to show you his love now, will not your heavenly Father provide everything that you need? Romans 8.32 is one of the greatest promises in the Bible it's one of the ones I go to often. It's one of the anchors for my own soul. Paul tells us this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us, what? All things. All things. You may not know how, and you may not know the means, but you can trust him. You can celebrate what matters most why? Because that develops steadfastness. As he says in verse 12, 
which he referred to back in verse verse 3. It deepens and grows our faith. In other words, God is using the little that you might have to shape you to become more like Christ. And you say, well, that's not fair. Yeah, what about those who have much? That's their own trial. They got their own stuff they're dealing with while having so much. Your trial is you have little and you can trust God and you rely on Him and you ask Him to be your provider and you take a step every day by faith and you find that He will be your provider, your defender. Or as James will say in chapter 2, because this isn't the last word he has on rich and poor. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? He has chosen the rich and the, the, the poor in the world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom. He's saying, listen to those of you who have little. God has chosen you, set his love upon you, and promised you to be an heir of the kingdom. And he says, remember that. Celebrate that. It's worth celebrating. Lesson two. When you have much, humble yourself by remembering who is in control. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich, and it's by inference, and the rich boast in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The rich are commanded to boast in their humiliation. Notice James doesn't call out the wealthy for their greed. Obviously, greed is a bad thing, and the Bible warns of it often. But but greed is normally a symptom of a bigger problem, a deeper problem, and that is this, our desire for control. Why do we want to amass more wealth? What drives us to have more? Isn't it because we think that the more we have, the more protected we will be against life trials? We think that if we have greater wealth, if we can amass more, if we can build up our 401k, if we can save enough for our kids' college, if we can do all those things, we can experience a greater security in life, that I can cover all my bases so that no matter what life throws my way, I will be protected. My family will, rather, will weather these storms. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what drives so many of our decisions? What are we seeking? Often it's control. We want to be able to limit the things that can have a negative effect on us, and so we accumulate more and more. And here's the problem with that. Here's the really subtle problem with that. Because in many ways, having more money actually does give us more control, doesn't it? The more money you have, the greater the opportunities you tend to have the greater the access to influential people and programs and groups, the more people tend to like you and treat you better. Not only that, when you have more money, you have more time and options to plan for your financial future because you're not in survival mode like the one who's in the lowly position. And what do all these things do? It creates this false sense of control. 
And it, and it actually leads to a sense of superiority. You see, the wealthy fall into the same trap as those who are lowly. They think their wealth, we think our wealth, determines our worth. That's not just for those who are lowly who fall under that. That's for all of us. That's because it's the world's prevailing message that you are defined by what you own and how much you have. Don't, don't you know that's true? I hope you know that. That's why, that's why the, the advertising industry spends billions of dollars to show you, you most of us see five to 600 ads a day. Because we are, we are told, we are trained to believe that unless we have something or have that thing, we're nobody. And if we do have that thing, then we're happy, we're blessed, we've made it, we've arrived, we're more valued. It's why the wealthy ones are the ones we admire and envy. It's why we take great interest in their lifestyles. Nobody says, lifestyles of the poor and lowly, and watches that. <laughs> but you make a show about lifestyles of the rich and famous, and we're like, yeah, I kind of want to see inside that guy's house. I want to see what she does with her money. She bought a table for $80,000? How is that Wow! How many pools do they have? Right? We just, we want to know. What are they wearing? Where do they live? And so wealth tends to lead to this sense of self-sufficiency, this sense of control, and this sense of pride. And so if you've done well financially, this, this thing can creep up in us that you start to think that you're something special. After all, it was your talents and your hard work that brought you success, right? Have you ever noticed that for often, not always, often those who have more or those who are more successful in certain areas of life seem to think that they're experts in all areas of life? It's as if making lots of money makes them smarter than and eventually they think better than others. And by the way, I have a mirror here, right? I'm preaching to myself. This is incredibly destructive spiritually. Is it any wonder why Jesus in Mark 4, 19 talks about the deceitfulness of riches? The deceitfulness of riches. There's something intrinsically deceitful or deceptive about wealth. Because the more you have, the greater your prosperity, the more you think that you are in control. That you are the reason why things are going so much better for you. Why did the rich man walk away from following Jesus? Jesus loved this man. And he told him to go sell everything he had to follow him. Why did he not do it? It wasn't because he didn't want salvation. It was because his wealth prevented him from accepting the truth that he needed saving in the first place. James says, let the rich boast in his humiliation. In other words, those of us who have much in this life need to remember often that our wealth is not our life. Our wealth is not our worth. We need to acknowledge that just like those who are lowly and just like everybody else in the world, that apart from Christ, we are spiritually bankrupt. 
As Jesus said, what does it profit a man or woman to gain the whole world and, that, and yet lose his soul? We think that having more will protect us from the trials in life, but here's the thing we miss. Having much is the trial. It is the trial. Having much is the test of our faith. We think that having much will help us weather all the storms. Right? And that's why we amass more, to protect ourselves, to have control. But James cuts at that very concept when he says, listen, your perspective is flawed. He pictures wealth as a wild flower in the Mediterranean desert. And he says, in its prime, it's stunning and beautiful. Right? Why do we give flowers? Because they are beautiful. Right? I... As, as beautiful as we can paint things, there, there's something about flowers, like living plants that are stunning and beautiful, and we love them. My wife enjoys flowers regularly, more regularly than I provide them. I'm working on it. The colors, the shapes, right, the smells, flowers represent true beauty. But just as stunning as a flower's beauty is a flower's brevity. Right? We, we find the beauty of a flower stunning, but what we forget is that the beauty of a flower is brief. And James pictures a wild flower. He says the richness humiliation because like a flower of the grass or like the, the wild flower, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. He pictures a wild flower in all its splendor and then the hot Middle Eastern sun rises and starts shining and beating down and the scorching wind blows through and just like that the wild flower is gone. All its glory is gone. It's dried up. It withers. It dies. It's very sobering because James is saying that's exactly how it is with our earthly wealth. Wealth is fleeting. You could be wealthy your whole life. Or you could have much your whole life. Or the stock market could crash tomorrow. Or you could get a diagnosis that changes everything. Or you could suddenly be laid off. Or you might not wake up tomorrow. Look, I'm not, making, I, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about being wealthy. I already said it's not immoral to have wealth. Godly people in the Bible were incredibly wealthy. Abraham, Job, just crazy wealthy. Nor am I trying to fearmonger in talking about the fleeting nature of wealth. I'm just helping you uh, understand and appreciate the stark image that James, that God through the book of James is trying to give us. He's saying to you in his love, Nothing in this life is permanent or guaranteed. It's sobering but clear. Don't put your hope in your wealth. That's the trial of having more. It's continually resisting the urge to let your hope migrate from Christ to your wealth. And you say, well, 
you're naming a bunch of things. I don't know if those things are happening, and most of the time those things don't happen. Well, we don't know, do we? Would you have said in, in February of 2020 that in a month the world would be shut down because a microscopic virus has shut the world down? Would you have ever guessed that? No. It changed everything just like that. If you have much in this life, you need a, we need a proper perspective about wealth, namely that it's temporary, and because it's temporary, it must be held on to lightly. It's why Paul would say in 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age, or if you have much, charge them not to be haughty, meaning not, not to be arrogant or, or proud or think that they're in control because they have more, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're James and Paul right on the same page. If you have much, don't boast about your wealth. Boast in Christ. Enjoy what God has given. Don't set your hope on those things. Humble yourself is what he's saying. Not to be haughty means to humble yourself. To remind yourself you're not in control. God is. That you are dependent on him not just for your wealth, but your very breath. That you humble yourself by remembering the gospel of grace, just like those who have little you remember that the good news of the gospel is not that you work hard, you become a success, and then God accepts you. That's not good news. No, the good news is that even in your human success, your heart still needs rescuing. And that Jesus can rescue a heart that struggles with superiority, just like he rescues the heart that struggles with inferiority. So do you have much in life? Do you have more than you need? Do you have enough to save for the future? Enough to spend on leisure and recreation? If you do, there's a greater need to remind yourself that money can never be your source of security. Most of us know this, but money is a terrible master. It's always demanding more of you than you can give, and it always takes more of you than you have when it becomes your master. But in Christ, in Christ, you have a master who has promised to never leave you, that he will never crush you, and that he actually died to make you his own. When you have Christ, you have lasting wealth. And when Christ is your greatest treasure, you'll find your grip loosening on earthly treasures. And your boast will be in Christ. You'll, you'll be able to boast in your humiliation. You'll be able to be okay with humbling yourself and realizing you're not in control. You're not always right. Just because you, you've been successful in one area doesn't make you an expert in all areas. And you'll be able to boast in your identity in Christ just like those who have little. Lesson number three. James teaches us, in every trial, remember God's promises which keep you steadfast in hope. James concludes this section by offering a promise in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. He says, blessed. That's the word Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It means happy, satisfied. He says, happy are the ones who remain steadfast under trial. Steadfast is the same word back in verse 3. 
We talked about this a few weeks ago. It means to hyperstand. It means to stand up under a heavy load. How do we remain steadfast in the trial? What gives us the motivation or the strength to not quit, but to keep on standing? He says, it's the promises of God. The promises of God. He has promised that you will receive the crown of life. This isn't a royal crown, not the crown that goes on a king's head or a queen's head. This crown that he's talking about, the word crown here is the word used in ancient times when Olympians would compete in the Olympics in the, in the, in the, in the different competitions and the winner was given a crown made from laurel tree leaves. He said, well, I'd rather have gold. No, back then that was a big deal, right? You get that crown, that's the crown of victory. You were victorious. You won. The crown, James says, that crown of victory represents eternal life. And he says God promises to give life to all who endure out of genuine love for Christ. Christian, one day, no matter how little or how much you have now or how, how little or how much you have when you end your life here, whatever it is, whatever your bank account says, whatever your assets equal to, it doesn't matter. One day, Christian, you will hear God say, not because of how well you did on earth, but because of what you did with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will hear God say, well done. And you will see in his face the admiration and the joy of a proud father. Not because you accumulated much, not because you were only able to accumulate little, but because the king of the universe looked at you and said, you are mine. You were bought with a price. I brought you into my family, not because of how much you made, but because of how much you mean to me. That's what we have to look forward to. That's our hope. Knowing this is our future, we can endure any trial it may be the trial of having little, it may be the trial of having much, it might be another kind of trial this morning. I don't know what it is. Or for many of us, it's the trial of, of both in our lives. Some, see, some of us have seasons where we have little and seasons where we have much. And some of us end in seasons where we have little again. James is saying that that's the point. It's not about how much you have. It's about remaining steadfast under all trials, under any trial. You can, you can be hyperstanding because you remember that your security and your value is in your union with Christ, not in your net worth. In all your trials, remember God's promises. Remember God's promise. Do you know the greatest promise that God made to you and fulfilled for you? When Paul was teaching the church at Corinth that they should give of their physical, their resources, when he, when he was instructing them, you literally should give money to, to support the gospel work around the world, he doesn't say, here are all the reasons why you should do it. It's good for your own heart. No, he says, let me, let me motivate you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul is saying, Christian, remember that Jesus was infinitely wealthy in eternity past. He, he's asking us to consider and remember, Jesus ruled the universe. There was nothing that he didn't have, was there? He had glory and, and beauty and security and power and love and joy and peace. 
Everything that we think money can give us, Jesus already had. And what did he do with all that wealth? He gave it up for you. He gave it up for you. The king became a beggar for you. The holy one became a sin bearer for you. He became poor so that you can become rich spiritually. So that you could experience all of the wealth of his glory and his beauty and his power and his love and his peace. You see, look, look at Jesus on the cross. Think about Jesus. Let your mind and heart go to where Jesus is on the cross, dying so you can live, suffering so you can be set free. And let the beauty and power of God's grace in the, in the cross of Christ grip your heart. He gave his son for you. And marvel at this truth that you who deserve nothing have been given everything. And it doesn't cost you anything because it cost Jesus everything. And that he did all of this. You put it all together and he says, this is what I've done for you. When that sinks in, you realize you are his treasure. You And when you finally see him making you his treasure, he will become your treasure. If you're not a Christian, you're watching this morning or you're listening, you're here and you're wrestling with the claims of Christianity. Maybe maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you say, no, I follow the, I want to follow the Ten Commandments. I I try to live by the golden rule. Those are, those are fine. That, that just doesn't make you a Christian. Being a Christian means you turn from whatever you've been holding on to to give you life, to give you security, to give you meaning, and you turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I only want to hold on to you. I only need you to give me life and security and meaning and eternity. I need you to be my Savior. And when you do that, everything else loses its grip because now you got the, the one thing in your heart, in your hands, that will never disappoint and never let you down. You have the one thing who can give you eternal life, the giver of life himself. And I invite you to turn to him right now. How do you become a Christian? You turn in your heart. You believe that Jesus is your Savior and you receive him. Christian, if you've already done that, listen, if you say, I've, he already has my heart, then guess what? That means you've already said yes to trust him with your money, no matter how little or how much you have. Right? If he already has your heart, you've already given him access to everything. You have everything that belongs to Jesus even now. You are already exalted with him. So now you can live a life of humility, of dependence, daily dependence, and even a life of joy. That whatever you have, you can use it to enjoy what God has provided. And that no matter what trial comes your way, Christian, you can stand up under it with the grace and strength that comes from being united to Christ. Because as we remain steadfast in hope, we sang about it in the cornerstone, we look forward with great anticipation when all trials will come to an end. And, and as David tells us in Psalm 16, in God's presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's the hope that God has promised to those who love him. 
Praise God, he always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Lord, we don't know what tomorrow will hold. We admit, we, we, we cannot predict the future. And yet our hearts so desperately want to prepare for any given outcome in the future. I pray that by your word, you would transform minds and hearts today. That we would not despise wealth, nor idolize wealth. That we would not feel inferior or superior based on our economic status. But that as a body of believers, as a family, we would share. We would be givers as you are the greatest giver. That we would have joy in boasting about the things that matter most and be humble about the things that are passing away. And I thank you, Jesus, that all of this is possible. We can swim against the current, as it were, because of you, Jesus. Because of your Holy Spirit indwelling us, filling us, empowering us to live a life that's going to look radically different in a world that is consumed with status and wealth. Lord, we need you. We invite that you would, that you would do this work in our hearts. We know it's possible. Lord, I know what you can do because I've seen you do it in our church and through our church time and time again. I pray you would do it even now as we approach your table, Lord. As we share in communion, God, prepare our hearts to remember yet again the most important reality there is. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.